Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Think it might have something to do with me being drunk all the time? I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem. I'm just not ready to deal with it yet. Look, Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, did you know that pigeons die right after they have sex? (laughs) No. Well, at least the one that I just fucked did. (laughs) It's been a long time since you told a stupid joke as an opening question. I mean, I think that's a classic. (laughs) It is. The delivery might have been a little messed up. but (laughs) Is your dog jealous that you're fucking other animals? Yeah. One of them is. The other one's just like, good. Compersive? Yeah, exactly. Omar is compersive. Charlie is pissed. He He's from a like, culture of honor. <laughs> I actually, I didn't even kill the pigeon. Like The pigeon was actually pretty happy with our encounter, but Charlie killed him. No, I thought it just died of AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> My AIDS can't go to the pigeon, I don't think. It's not how it works. Uh, I think that's that's... <laughs> A joke I should remove. <laughs> All right. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University, and I'm kind of tired, so I apologize. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Tamler? Um, today, we are going to talk about the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. We're making an executive decision to pronounce it Omelas, because that's how we heard it pronounced, but we have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so forgive us. There's some if sort of totally. government conspiracy to prevent us from finding out too. Like the the web is dark on that on that question. <laughs> and she's dead. She's no longer with us, so we can't ask. Is she? She died. She just died recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful story. It's really interesting. It's got all sorts of connections to utilitarianism, but not in kind of obvious or reductive ways, I don't think. Um, I, I'd never read it. I signed it for my class just because I kind of wanted to read it, and a lot of listeners have recommended it for us. And yeah, I was impressed, kind of blown away by it. Yeah, yeah, there's there's actually a lot more. I had read it before, but in reading it for this there's a lot more there than than I thought in my memory. But let me ask you this. is What is the direction of causality? You always say that you assign things for class and then we, we talk about it on the show. And I feel like you're just double dipping in a way that pisses me off. Like, I never get to do that. Why? You should. Yeah, I don't teach. I don't, you know, if we, if, if we, if you were willing to talk about a really boring journal article, you know. Maybe well, we get away. <laughs> maybe you should teach more interesting classes. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I should just assign like the intro psych 
textbook chapter on perception. <laughs> or William James. Oh, yeah, William James. Why great. don't you do a William James seminar for once? Because I don't do seminars. Well, I've been forbidden. Because I teach the big intro psych course and I get a course relief. And I could do one if I choose, but if, when I choose, I usually co-teach. But yeah, William James. I actually took a great William James seminar in, in, when I was in grad school in philosophy. Um, we read both principles, that both, ish, both volumes. Sorry. Yeah, we did too, actually. I did yeah. the same. That's really good. In grad school. It was, yeah, it was amazing. And I, but I, it was so, it was long ago. I don't remember it. So yeah. I would love to do that. We maybe should we actually could. do, yeah, we should do some chapters and maybe we can do a free will, another free will episode. He has a chapter on the will. It's yeah. actually kind of interesting. All right. Well, uh, in the first segment, we're going to talk about, we just met up in Vancouver for a conference for the American Philosophical Association. You were there because you are a philosopher at heart. I was there because I am a philosopher by profession. And uh, and then we also talk briefly about the meetup that we had in Vancouver, which was pretty uh, pretty fun. <laughs> While it w- it lasted being fun for me, but I'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I. Uh, wh- I thought I thought it might be nice at least to say what we talked about. We both gave talks at the APA Vancouver. It, yeah. Sort of as an ex, but we both independently had been invited. Neither of us attended the other's session. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that would that would be too weird. Yeah, well I I talked about predictively restorative justice and I defended it against a particularly annoying objection that retributivists and dessert theorists dessert theorists Dessert theorists make. Um, what about you? I, I heard about yours. Yeah, yeah. My, so I spoke on a, a panel about moral disgust, and the main argument that I was making was that m- there is no separate emotion called moral disgust. Some people believe that that the emotion of disgust of being grossed out was sort of co opted by the by evolution to become a moral emotion, and I argued that no, it's just that it's just grossness. And that sometimes we metaphorically apply it to to immoral acts, and sometimes we just apply it because some immoral acts are actually gross, um, but that there's not a separate thing. And I talked about the relationship between disgust sensitivity and political orientation, and then Jesse Prince gave the wrap-up talk and tried to shit on my conclusions. And so in the panel, we kind of got in an argument uh, about his shoddy use of science, um, selective use of p-hacked studies from 10 years ago. But, you know. What was his problem with what you did exactly? He had a weird number of problems about the even studying political orientation by asking people these survey questions across the world, which he could criticize if he wanted, but his problem was that it's too reductive. And he said it in this weird postmodern-y annoying way that made it sound like he was rejecting the, the, even, even the task of doing science. But then at the same time, he was pointing to all these like stupid embodiment studies from like, you know, 2000s that, that nobody believes anymore. But we had lunch afterwards. So the takeaway lesson for our listeners, don't criticize Dave's talk or his work. <laughs> well, if you do, come with, come with some real shit. <laughs> That's a challenge, Jesse Prince. Did, 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 did people disagree with you? No, it was a sympathetic 
audience for what I was selling. Everybody there is in some form concerned about the criminal justice system and interested in reform. It was just a cool session. I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't typically like philosophy talks, as you know, but I actually <laughs> I enjoyed every single one in our session. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so then we uh, we did a meetup in Vancouver. We were we kind of did an over under for how many people we thought, and I think we said ten or something. Yeah, just based yeah. on a little interest from Reddit and Twitter, although not that much. And certainly, only a few people said I'll be there. You know, right? Yeah, and we get there, and it's this uh, big, huge table at the bar of of people. It was a cool thing. Now. I had taken an edible not too long before, but enough that it was starting to kick in just as we walked up those stairs. And then you walk up these <laughs> stairs, which are kind of fucked up and lynchian on their own. Yeah, yeah. It was like the entrance to like a secret club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, and then everyone's like, hey. And so we sat down and talked to, I, mean, I don't know, there's probably at the outset like 15 20 yeah, right there 15, uh, yeah right at the outset and then and then it wasn't a particularly big bar but by the end the whole bar was yeah full i didn't even get to meet everybody like much yeah i don't think i did either disappointment i'm sure <laughs> um <laughs> yeah and then the bartender she who's also the manager she started out giving me shit about this like we should have warned them but then she also said she had a friend that couldn't be here but that liked the podcast oh no way yeah. Oh. She was making fun of me, giving me a hard time, but she didn't. Uh, but then she did say, I promised I would uh, buy a shot for you from him. And so I, sh- she bought it. I did it. I think I brought one over to you. Yeah, you did. We, we did that one. And then she said she wanted to do one with me, too. <laughs> and, you know. By the we, way, let me just, can I preface this with a conversation we had at dinner yeah. where I talked. <laughs> to tamler about pacing the importance of pacing and tamler was on board 100 percent. yeah it's just not it's never been a strength of mine but you're right i'm in theory in in principle i'm totally for pacing myself but i'm not also one to turn down a shot right or however many shots and you know people were buying us drinks too and uh it's it was very overwhelming i mean wasn't it? it was yeah 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 totally I mean, our expectations were, were not set properly. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> then then I, I saw you. You were at a table, and you were talking to three young women, yes. 20s. Yeah, who were not at all. <laughs> who were like three people I found who had no idea why everybody was there. They yeah. did not know about the podcast. And, right. and, I, and actually, I thought of it as like a little respite from from sort of like all the other conversations. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, and I agree. Anyway, yeah, so you were talking to them. Then I started talking to them. You left. So I'm just there, like you said, just to get a respite a little bit. Then a a Very Bad Wizards listener also comes and joins and says, are you talking to them about Immanuel Kant? (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about Immanuel Kant. And then I was explaining to... To to the women, oh, I it's it's a joke because I hate uh, Immanuel Kant. And then the German, there's a German 
Uh, yeah. uh, one of them is German. She's kind of blonde, Hitler kind of youth uh, look. <laughs> and she said, I love Immanuel Kant. And, she's, and I said, really? You do? She says, yeah, I mean, you want to you wanna be able to control the car. You have a car. You bought the car. You want to be able to control the car. <laughs> and I said, what the fuck? And then... <laughs> Like, I still had enough wits about me at this point because she keeps going in and it's all about the car and controlling it and having a sense <laughs> of it and not, you know, giving up that control. And then I realized that what she thought was the, we were talking about was a manual car. Like a stick shift. A stick shift, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so that was like a three or four minute misunderstanding. Uh. And the funny thing is, I agree with her about Emmanuel Kant, just not Emmanuel Kant. Uh, I agree as well. I just don't have the luck of having one. All that, my car, I've never like, owned an automatic. Oh, yeah. Oh, damn it. So then, uh, this, this is the prelude to... <laughs> to an early end to my night a uh yeah right like it's like ten forty-five. i look over and tamler is on the booth like i don't think it was ten forty-five. there it was so what did it i was. make it like almost three hours right <laughs> yeah the thing is some ubc students they're like undergrads come over to me while i'm talking to those uh women and they say hey we're gonna go out and get stoned you want to come and fuck me i forget the guy's name he wanted me to mention that he was the one that uh i think it was like archie or something well i can't find it um that's what happens so yeah they take me outside and i and i you know i definitely shouldn't be doing this i've been drinking and then i had also taken an edible already i took i don't know two or three fairly big hits and they just knocked me on my ass. I knew when I was coming up those stairs that that was a big mistake, coming back up the stairs. And yeah, then I go over to the booth with those guys who are just awesome. I love those guys. And yeah, I just stay there. Yeah. Uh, and then it was just a struggle for me from then on to keep my eyes open. Yeah, and I was really embarrassed and I just it just sucked. I saw see you over there kind of entertaining the table and I'm just sitting there with like my eyes barely open. It I, fucking oh, sucked. You left me like you, you, I felt like, uh, like abandoned, betrayed. I don't know what the right word is. You were fine um, with it. <laughs> you liked it. That was the worst no, part. No, I know, because you wanted it. to go home already. You were like, right, let's go home. I was yeah, like, well, we didn't get home till like midnight, so yeah, maybe, clearly. Maybe that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you, Vancouver listeners who came out. It that was really, really fun. fun. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully Next. in the future, we can come to your city and you can get Tamler even more fucked up. I'm going to pace myself. I've learned my mm -hmm. lesson. <laughs> you fully admitted to this one, but uh, I take it this is not your guilty confession. No, <laughs> uh, it is not. Uh, yeah, should we do guilty confessions? We haven't. It's time, it's time, time to bring back guilty confessions. <laughs> Who wants to go first? I'll go first. All right. Took me a while because Wait, are you, do you were, the music has already played? Yeah, yeah. When I go to other people's houses and I use their restroom, I can't help myself but look through their medicine cabinet. 
<laughs> I'm ashamed of this behavior. <laughs> but like, there's just there's just this curiosity that comes over me to see what people have in there. And even though it's usually the guest restroom, you know, sometimes people have some like drugs, you know. <laughs> I mean, are we going to have this conversation? Are we really doing this? <laughs> um, well, there, there you go. I already said it. I'm not going to say how many times I've taken drugs. <laughs> I I know I certainly know to hide my drugs anytime uh, you know we're sharing a place or anything like that. No, but I mean I. I wonder how common this is. I, I don't actually, like, I wouldn't steal drugs from somebody. Like, it's it's more that, you know, my my mom has caught me stealing, like, the you know, the Vicodin that she didn't use for her operation. Right. You know, my sister my sister once had cough syrup with codeine in it, and she, she goes for it, and she's like, what the fuck? And so I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so the art is to to, you know, not take above the just noticeable difference threshold like the it needs to look like nothing's happened and also that it has to be long enough that they're clearly not suffering from whatever they suffer oh, for from. sure for sure for the, these are these are people who like who like oh yeah i just have a ball in there because it's their guest bathroom like yeah. if they were in pain you know yeah <laughs> and, and like you can see from the date that it was like eight months ago. And if you've had a bottle of Vicodin in your house for eight months, you don't like Vicodin. Exactly. And, you know, what are you going to do? Flush it? That would be horrible. <laughs> well, uh, this could be my gu- guilty confession, too. It's <laughs> not fair. Hi- hide your drugs, people. Anytime. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but there is an ethic to it. And I am very strict about my ethic. For sure. I I would say I was really going more for the the small guilt I feel for just looking. Yeah. Like I like that that's really what I was going for because I it's rare that I'll take anything and and when I do it's usually like like I said from my <laughs> my own parents or sister um <laughs> your child. <laughs> no, not for my child. But it's more the guilt of like I'm like I feel like I'm violating their space. But like I, you know, if you have a guest bathroom, you shouldn't be putting anything too private in there. It's more the a voyeuristic need to see how people live. You know, do you have Q-tips in there? Like what what's in what's in there? You know, like I don't know. Yeah, so it's like searching through their like underwear drawer or something like that. <laughs> no, sniffing not at it all and... like that. Not at all like that. There might be <laughs> some soap that you know I'd rather use. Yeah, kind of a papaya. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's scented. right. Like they put out the blueberry soap, but there's a fresh papaya soap in this medicine cabinet, and I want that. All right, all right. Uh, these are this is something I'm genuinely not proud of because it's the end of the semester, and students are inclined to pull some shit at the end of the semester, and mm-hmm. I I tend to really be a hard ass about not letting them get away with stuff. And part of that is because I remember myself as a college student, some of the shit that I would try. Like, I think I've already said that I once pretended to have pink eye. And pink eye is one of those things that nobody questions it. Like, if you have better safe than sorry. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, I don't want to hear about it. Like, okay, yes. When do you want to turn in the paper? Fine. But the one I really am not proud of, so I was at, uh, it was my my senior year, I was taking an acting class, purely for my own, you know, edification, 
And the the teacher said, keep a journal every day, like an acting journal, where you just <laughs> kind of observe people and what they do and their mannerisms and and just keep it every day. And then at the end of the semester, turn it in to me. This is would be, this is a great idea. And it's especially a good idea if you're an actor, just kind of seeing how people are. I think it would have been good as a writer, which I wanted to be, to just really pay attention to what was going on around me. And I immediately just didn't do it. I, I don't know if I had this plan all along, but I just didn't do it. I don't think I ever did it like a page of it. I'm not sure if I even bought one. And then at the end of the semester, I went to him and like <laughs> looked him in the eye and said, I, I don't know what to say. I, I've been, I was keeping it. It was really cool. I just came up <laughs> with this story that I lost it. And I have no idea where it was. And I, and I, I was like, I can't. I, you know, like you were just doing that convincing thing where you're like, like, oh my God, I can't. I, <laughs> I was, yeah. And, and like kind of banking on the fact that even if he suspected it, he couldn't prove, you know, that I didn't really lose yeah. it. Yeah. That's and, when you say, look, I'll take a zero. I'm sorry. Like, you know, I, I, I hope that you don't, but like I lost it and I can't do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. That's, yeah. I'm sure I did that. I was like, I, I, under, <laughs> I totally understand if you need to fail me or whatever, you know, for the, or fail, fail me for this assignment or give me a zero, but I'm just telling you what happened. I hope you can understand. I, I, you know, like just such bullshit. And it's so dishonorable. It's just disgraceful. And like yeah. the fact that I would do that I did that in college, the fact that I just turned down the opportunity to do something that was really cool and then lied about it. I, I hate that. I hate I think you know, I think about that with a lot of shame for whatever reason. I honestly like all these confessions except for the jokey ones, like it's not because we're laughing and making light of them. It's because like I actually feel shame. <laughs> like Totally. And if any students listen to this, that, that I'm only stricter because of that. Yeah. Because I know that you don't have to be an irredeemably bad person. I don't know. You know, a lot of my colleagues disagree with me, but, but I always sort of have this attitude that, you know, you're the ones paying $50,000 to get an education. Like, if you don't want to take it seriously, fuck it. <laughs> like... I don't agree. I'm like, I'm with your colleagues. Yeah. No, I don't think I mean it's just our job to give them an education and 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 not let them cheat to the best of our ability. I, I Yeah, but I'm not a babysitter, you know? It's like if you're going to go go out of your way to lie to me, I just don't want them to cheat in front of me. I I that's a violation of my, that's an honor violation right there. Like I've caught people on a test just completely looking at like you know a cheat sheet or at somebody else and I'll, that that offends me it should it, do i it mean so it's blatantly. a strike on your honor if they cheat period if it's in front of you maybe it's extra blatant like kind of calling you out do something about it almost maybe a cry for help a cry for <laughs> discipline <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah yeah if they do it on their own they're the ones not learning that's all that's all. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, no, I totally disagree. <laughs> I'm actually curious. Listeners, you can chime in. But yeah, don't do it. Here's the thing about college that, and you know, it was one of my big regrets and, you know, one of the reasons I really thoroughly enjoyed graduate school, like every second of it, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to reflect and learn about yourself and about incredible thinkers and ideas you shouldn't waste it you shouldn't squander it because you don't typically get it again 
And you, you know? know what? A lot of our a lot of our listeners, um, and we've talked about this, and we even met some. A lot of our listeners don't have the opportunity to take classes, yeah, on these topics that they like, and they would do anything to be able to do that, right? They just didn't come up with the opportunity to do that. They had to go straight to work after high school, you know, and they listen and they they enjoy they enjoy the intellectual and the maybe not so intellectual part of the podcast. They would jump at the chance to to be in the position to 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 learn like that. I mean, it really is an incredible time. Yeah, and I think and that's true. Uh, all right. Let's take a break. And now that our sins have been cleansed, we are ready to talk about the ones who walk away from Omelas. 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 That's what we're doing. Omelas. That's what we're doing. All right. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners. We're feeling especially grateful after that awesome turnout in Vancouver, which was so flattering and just weird and overwhelming um, to have uh, that many people there and joking around with us. It was tons of fun and for those of you of course who weren't able to make it but who get in touch with us in all these other ways know that we are so grateful and it's really something special for us to get in touch with us you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com you can tweet us at tamler at peas at verybadwizards follow us on instagram you can Rate us on iTunes. That would be awesome if you rated us on iTunes, gave us a review. You can join the subreddit, the lively discussion on... If you would like to support us in more tangible ways, there are a number of different ways to do that as well. And we so appreciate our Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. There are three different levels with some bonuses for um, for those of you who donate. We really appreciate it. Our last episode with Paul Bloom was a fairly big hit, I think. People liked it. Yeah. And it What's all, not to like about Paul? It was totally the idea of the listeners, both to do an episode on parenting and the impact of parenting and also to have Paul Bloom on. Our Patreon listeners voted on that, suggested it. It was all them, and that was awesome. Um you can also give us a one-time donation on PayPal. Um, is there anything else that I've forgotten? No, but but really, thank you. I think this was, you know, you see numbers and you get emails, but until you see people in person who who really have gone out of their way to drive to see you, like it's a weird, it's a weird but cool feeling that humanizes. Um, not that we thought that our listeners weren't human. 
but it was great. It was, it was, uh, I don't know why unexpected, but great. Special thanks to that one guy I was sitting next to at my lowest point of the evening. Whose name you forgot. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I can say is he was Asian. He was very cool as I was kind of like struggling. He was just like, just chill. <laughs> Listen to the lay back. Lay back. Yeah. He was just like, it was just what I needed to hear. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the story. The story luckily doesn't require a long summary. It's the gist of the idea can be expressed in one sentence, but this is Ursula K. Le Guin, who we lost recently in 1973, uh, wrote this short story, award-winning short story, about, I would say, a utopia. It starts off by describing a, a city of people, Omalas, uh, who are celebrating the festival of summer. And this is described as, you know, using all of the flowery language you would you would use to describe an idyllic fairy tale scene. You know, everybody's uh, the boats are sparkling in the harbor, and the houses are freshly painted, and there's trees, and there's just a lot of that language that's just giving you that feeling of a of a paradise almost. Everybody's happy. The only real problem with this utopia is that it requires, through no explanation of a mechanism, um, it requires that one one child be uh, living in a dark, damp basement with uh, very little light, um, nothing around them, suffering, not eating, um, uh, just essentially being neglected to the point of torture. And people around, people in the city of Omelas know that this is the one thing that's keeping everybody happy. Um, And some people choose to actually go look at this kid. And what they do when they look at that kid is, is, I think, crucial to the story. And it's what gives it its title. Some people walk away from that paradise. They don't rescue the child, but they they Mm -hmm. walk away from the paradise. One thing to say about the child is... It once was up in the in the city, knows the sound of its mother's voice. We don't know if it's a boy right. or a girl, but so it, it and has absolutely no idea why it's being uh, uh, he or she. She refers to it as it as being held down there, and they're they're not permitted to say anything, give any explanation, or say one kind word to yeah. the to the child yeah it's it's a it's a terrible just like just like Le Guin goes out of her way to convince us how happy they are there is she pulls no punches about saying how miserable it, this kafka-esque suffering where you don't know no idea you're just yanked one day to live in this dirty cellar with with nobody giving you any love and barely barely any food um okay so let's go deeper because there's so much to explore in just the way she tells the story. I mean, right. I knew the bare bones of the story right. before, and it it almost sounds so simplistic, like maybe a reductio of utilitarianism or in some yeah. weird sense. But it's so much more than that. It's so it's so it's so much richer. So actually, I have to admit that it took me a long time in life to read it because the punchline is so easily communicated that I thought, okay, well, I already know. One thing, let me just say right now that I recommend that listeners do before we discuss this, we'll post a link to this YouTube um, clip. It's 17 minutes long, 
And it is a, a narrator reading the story while also showing the the story's text on the screen. I did this for my class because I was I correctly suspected that they wouldn't have read uh, the story before class, and, <laughs> um, and and if they did, they wouldn't have read it carefully. And it was actually really cool to just read the story, experience the story that way. That was you get both text and audio is a really good right. way of really processing all the language and um, so anyway, do that. Don't just skim through it, but but really go into it because it, it fucks with you emotionally, yeah. psychologically. Like I I I I was totally fucked with my my class was also I think like just kind of un- right. unnerved by it. So. It really is written at the beginning like a fairy tale. I think that's one reason maybe it, the telling of it, you know, orally works so well. It it sounds like it's going to be this just like, oh, you're going to bed. Like, let me tell you about this wonderful city of Omelas. <laughs> Might as well be a story about a Disney princess and living happily ever after. Sort of. So the first paragraph is is definitely like that. It's all kind of written in the past tense about a very specific festival that's just getting started and it's joyous and it's you know right. it's wonderful as you say and then it's it switches into I have to explain to you how deep this joy was and then it turns from just like a story like a fairy tale language to like the narrator is talking to you yeah. um and 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 kind of reckoning with her struggle i mean her him we don't know you don't know anything about the narrator uh to to convey what it was that this city had it's really interesting the way that she does so this is that point where i saw le guin distinguishing Omelas from like Brave New World, essentially, from the city in Bla- mm-hmm. Brave New World, where people are happy, but it's that superficial, stupid mm-hmm. kind of happiness where they only feel just base pleasures and are denied basic freedoms. And 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 she just explicitly says, so here's a here's a line. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folks, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is we have that that we have a bad habit encouraged by pedants and sophisticates. This seems like a direct shot at Huxley of considering (laughs) happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. And then she says, how can I tell you about the people of Omelas? They were not naive and happy children. They were mature, intelligent, passionate adults whose lives were not wretched. Oh, miracle, but I wish I could describe it better. Uh, and she says uh, at this point that it sounds like a city in a fairy tale. And then she doesn't, but she doesn't want us to think that. Right. So then w- I think this is what was the first thing that I found fascinating. She starts to get us to help her create the city. 
It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But she says early on, perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bids. And then she's like, how about technology? She's like brainstorming almost with us. Yeah, no, it's it moves from being a real city that the narrator appears to have visited and described in all of this detail to a city that that is that now has to exist in our mind because there's no way she feels she can communicate the joy. So the best way that she can communicate the joy is, is for you, reader, fine, tell me what all the good parts uh, that, that you would want are, right? Yeah, she says at one point, if this is sounding maybe a little too goody two-shoes for you, if it is, add an orgy. If an orgy I would help, that. don't hes- hesitate. <laughs> I love that. I, <laughs> if so, please add an orgy. <laughs> Go for uh, it. With uh, some caveats. Yeah. Let us not have temples from which issue beautiful nude priests and priestesses already half in ecstasy and ready to copulate with any man or woman, lover or stranger who desires union. But really, it would be better not to have any temples. No relig- religion, maybe. Clergy, no. Orgies, but like where everybody's enjoying them. Same with drugs. She's like, yeah, I, I, I love this. I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint, insistent sweetness of Druze may perfume the way of the city. And again, she takes this drug, Druze, and I think she goes out of her way to distinguish it from Soma, which is <laughs> that kind of dull, like, ecstasy, you're just really happy, but not thinking in any deep way and what she talks about are the wonderful visions at last of the very arcana and inmost secrets of the universe as well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief and it's not habit forming <laughs> and it's this i like yeah. this drew sounds amazing uh it um, does I want, there's, I want there's something she says right before that which i think is important she says so one thing i know one thing i know there is none of in omalas is guilt which yeah. I think is important for the for the story to, and for her to remove that as any possibility. But it, but it's actually like I I highlighted this also because it just kind of comes out of nowhere and out of nowhere. It's hard to you know once you find out what you find out, it's it's open to question. It would seem like or at yeah, least. I it's it could be read just as a you know she's just talked about orgies and she wants to point out that people don't feel guilty about those right like because we so we might associate licentious sex with something that's that's bad for us and feel bad after we do it she yeah i don't think that that's that's not the way i read it i suppose it could be because she comes back to it towards the end as well and it has nothing to do with sex but it, it just kind of dropped out of nowhere it goes from the sex to the to the religion and then just one sentence on guilt, and then quickly to the drugs. I don't know, but I want to come back to that. Yeah. Uh, so, so actually, I just want to ask you: Why do you think she switches to from first just describing it very specifically to something that we now are part of building with her, and that she is very unsure about, and sort of building it with us? We're all doing it at the same time. Why do you think yeah. she's doing this? First of all, I think it's a brilliant move because I think that she, I mean, she says she's anticipating that, that, that the only way we're going to get to understand this is if we take part in building it. Because if she were to describe a utopia and for instance, she said, and there were, um, 
nothing but good religions. And somebody could say, fuck religion. That's not a utopia. Right. Or if she said, and everybody could have sex with everybody. Well, fuck that. That's not a utopia. Like, you know, so it's super important for, for the story that everybody is on board with the, the thought that there is nothing but happiness and not dumb happiness, but smart happiness. But she can't, you know, she can't possibly cover all of the objections that the reader would have. Right. And she knows that all the readers are different. Like, and so some people want religion and and orgies. Some people don't want religion. Some people want religion, no orgies, no religion and orgies. I think I... Yeah. You filled out all the cells there. (laughs) And, And so, yeah. And so I think that's one of the things. It's like prefiguring the decision that's going to be put to us. She doesn't want us to have an easy decision, right? She doesn't want it to be, well, I wouldn't really want that version of utopia anyway. Because that that would easily undermine the point for a reader to just disagree with something. Yeah, exactly. And then now, oh, yeah, I definitely walk away because I don't, you know, I don't like that utopia anyway. I also think it is very... Like, it, she is implicating us now in this city. She is making mm-hmm. us a part of it. We're building uh, it. That's, that's a really good point. With her. Whether we like it or not now, we're becoming responsible for the existence of this city. <laughs> that, you know? And I think yeah. that's really, that's just so cool, like, the, the way she does that. And it's, it's almost like, it's seductive, kind of, you know? It's that, that's great. I, like, I... I hadn't thought of it that way. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about, about vill- when we talk about good villains and, and, you know, whenever the millions of times I mentioned Tony Soprano and I, I think, you know, there is this thing where we've lived through his eyes for so long that we, we are now implicated in his bad actions. Yeah. But this is an even more effective way or at least a more efficient way to do it. Yeah, you know? exactly. She's, She's made us build this city, you know, in, in our heads that, that she's, con- she's convinced us to any objection that comes to mind. All right, fix it. Fix you know, it. just fix it. But as you're fixing it, it's like Satan-ish, you know, it's like <laughs> we're just digging ourselves, attaching ourselves. you don't know ourselves. what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Like, I wish that I, I had read this story without knowing. Yeah, I do too. Um, it was still a shock. I knew yeah. what was going to happen, but just the the detail in which it was described was still shocking to me. Yeah, yep. And then um, when, when we played it again for the class, I was like dreading that part coming. And then, and then when it came, I, it was still just deeply, I don't know, emotional. Um, yeah. And so she's going on to describe now, you know, now in the more abstract sense, she was describing in a very concrete sense. Now, now we're, we're playing this game with her and she's guiding our imagination. And so she says, oh, they have this drug that has no side effects. It's wonderful. And there's lots of celebrations, but it's not celebrations because of violence, because that's th- that kind of celebration sucks. It's trivial. That uh, kind of just, courage sucks. She says yeah, there's that, courage, but it's a virtuous courage, not right. the, like bad kind of courage. Right. Um, that's, they don't, they don't need to defeat anybody to have a sense of, of victory in their heart. Yeah. And then she says, you know, that you remember that perfect drug I described, I don't even think 
most people need to take it yeah. right? because everything is so good that, that why would you need to take it? Yes. Uh, although, you know, again, uh, if you want to take it, go for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm already signed up to take it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking through, I'm looking through all the cupboards in um, Omalas, all, <laughs> all, all the bathroom medicine cabinets. Where's the Drews? Where's the Drews? Look at that. It's this Drews is going to expire in two months anyway. So. <laughs> they have had Drews sitting here for nine months. <laughs> it would be dangerous for them to take it, but I, my body can take it. <laughs> exactly. And then it goes back to like the processions. Um, so now right. it's back to this event. Yeah, it's like, remember, there's a festival, right? Yeah. I had forgotten for a second. The smell of cooking goes forth. She's now writing in the, I, I don't know this, what the significance of this is, but it's noticeable. She, she's, she, she started in the past tense describing the festival and now it's in the present tense. Mm-hmm. And now she, because she's asking you now that you've built the city, now imagine, now now see, look, they're they're walking past, they've reached the green fields now. There is a smell. Like now we're part of the city. That's right. We're there. That, that's, yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And so it started out, we're not part of the city. It's like a journalist describing it to us. But now we're just in it. Now that we've helped build it, we're still yeah. in it. Yeah. And then this, it's a, a little, a, a boy playing a flute. All the little idyllic parts of old woman passing out flowers tall yeah. young men wearing it with their shining hair um trumpet sounding the horses oh those horses um, sober-faced young riders and then she says D- here's the transition line do you believe do you accept the festival the city the joy no then let me describe one more thing <laughs> one more thing should we just read some of this? Sure. Why don't you do that? In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omalas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there's a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, secondhand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room, a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet or disused, disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits hunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. Now she's, you know, now she's saying like, maybe it's in this room, maybe it's in that room. And then she's getting to the visceral, like, yeah, but, but, but let me tell you, wherever it is, it's in the dirt. It's a small room. So this is the part that breaks my heart. The door is always locked. Nobody ever comes except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval interval sometimes their door rattles terribly and opens and a person or several people are there one of them may come and kick the child to make it stand up the others never come close but peer at it with frightened disgusted eyes the food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled the door is locked the eyes disappear the people at the door never say anything but the child who has not always lived in the tool room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice sometimes speaks I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. They never answer. 
Oh, and so, it, it's, ter- it's, it's so fucking visceral. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it speaks less and less often. It is so thin, there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there. All the people of Omelas. So, so let's stop there for a sec. Yeah. Couple yeah. things. Again, there's this weird switch alter mm-hmm. between like very specific details, like it's almost 10, but it looks about six. It's diet. Yeah. But then it could be a boy or a girl. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, like there are certain basic things that are not told to us and certain details that are told to us. Yeah. And it's just. It's horrible. Yeah, I mean, she does, and this is crucial to the story, You ha- it has to be something that really cuts at you at an emotional level. Yeah, I think that throughout the story, the things that she leaves up in the air are things that she think would, would uh, potentially soften the blow. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe you, you might actually care more if it's a boy or if it's a girl, right? So... We don't need to know. Right. So right. it could be either oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whichever one you would care about most. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. And the, and the fact that the kid used, you know, at some point had a mother. Right. Some point a mother gave up this child. That's yeah. important, I think, for the torture, right? So yeah. if, if the child just never knew anything and was born like a factory farmed animal or something like that, it's definitely suffering. But there's something yeah. worse about suffering because you also know that there's something better and you feel like you've been denied it and you don't know why and not only that at that age thinking it's your fault yeah Yeah. when's my mom coming back what like at any time the door opens yeah maybe having the hope that it's your mom coming to pick you up yeah like a dog and to not know why yeah to you know this is yeah. So, and it, uh, and importantly, everybody in the city knows that this child is there. Only some of them have come to see it, though. Yeah. Yeah. So they all know it's there. Some of them have come to see it. Others are content merely to know it's there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of right. them understand why, and some do not. But they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. Crucially, she underspecifies why she leaves that open because you know, at some point I remember talking about Groundhog Day and, and how much of a shittier movie it would have been if there was an explanation for why everything was happening. Um, I think this is kind of like that. If if Le Guin had said, "Oh, because through some you know like you know magic causal force, the a deal they had made with a demon thousands of years ago," it would just be stupid. We don't. That's not important, right? Yeah. The important thing is that they know. Everybody's convinced. Everybody knows that this needs to happen. Yeah. Or, or that if it if it doesn't happen, they will lose their their happiness. This is usually explained to children when they're between eight and twelve. 
whenever they seem capable of understanding. And most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often enough an adult comes or comes back to see the child, which is interesting, right? Like the curiosity. So then it, she says that, you know, when they first see it, especially the young people, they'll be, they'll go home in tears or a tearless rage, she says. Uh, Shocked and sickened at the sight. Yeah. They feel disgust. They feel anger, rage, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. Yeah, and then they could may brood over it for weeks or years, but as time goes by, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no doubt, but little more. So it, it's like they start, I don't know, like I think there's a bunch of different ways to read this, but I start to read it as they start rationalizing. Well, yeah, I mean, they... It's important that they have that reaction to show that whatever this deal is that causes the whole city to be happy hasn't so fundamentally changed them that they wouldn't feel the shock and the misery and the empathy and the desire to save this kid yeah. when they see it. Right. right. It's important that they react in the way that anybody would react and they want to do something. They're idealists. Yeah. The children are the idealists, you know, and the youth is just true are the idealists in society. And um, soon they realize they can't do shit. There's nothing, nothing they can do. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a cynical way to read this, I think, crucial passage here. And there's a not as cynical way to read it. But uh, when, when, she, when they say, but as time goes by, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and, and food, no doubt, but little more. It is too degraded and imbecile to know any real joy. Indeed, after so long, it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it and darkness for its eyes and its own excrement to sit in. The, their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they per, begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Now, mm, yeah, you could read that as they are they are uh, discovering the truth that there's nothing much they can do for this child. I inclined to read it as they are telling themselves a story to make themselves feel better about benefiting from the suffering of this child. They don't know. They're speculating about what would happen if you freed it. And especially when they say it would probably be wretched without like having it, uh, its own excrement to sit in, that sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> but I want to know, like, because the rest of the paragraph, I think, it also strikes me as bullshit in a slightly more subtle way, but this strikes me as I'm telling myself a story to make me feel better about this horrible injustice and to start calling it a terrible justice. Right. So, so they're motivated because they know the deal. It's been explained. The terms are strict and absolute. There may not even be a kind word spoken to the child. So anything they do will breaking that rule will ruin the city of Omalas. And so, because of that, in a motivated fashion, they start thinking, well, you know, what are we going to do? This kid has no shot anyway, right? I, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, look, yeah, I mean, I think you're right because the passage continues um, 
And they say, uh, it says, they know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. That's that's really interesting, but strikes me as like an even worse kind of rationalization. No, I know. So right before, just a sentence right before that. Yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity, and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. It's like they're almost glorifying their acceptance of this child's suffering at that point, saying, oh, we're suffering too, in a way. Because yeah, exactly. We, I'm not free either. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we have to do this. We're part of this puzzle. There's nothing we can do. It's like fatalistic, and yet there's something about that that almost glorifying of their acceptance of this child's torture that yeah, that struck me as. And I, I had a lot of students that didn't agree with this. Like they thought maybe this is part of the explanation of why the child has to be down there. Maybe this is. Yeah. You know, I think you can well, read it that way. I mean, and there's especially that second part, there's, you you know, in order to appreciate beauty, you need to know what ugly is. Right. Right. And exactly. And having only one instance of ugly is the best, the best world, because uh, in another city, you have plenty of instances of people suffering. Here, we just got it down to one. You know, we make it a little little tour for the eight to 12 year olds to come see it. From then on, they go and produce great works of art because they now know what happiness truly is in a way that they didn't before. Yeah. And, you know, this is one answer to the problem of evil where you say, well, Mm -hmm. there needs to be suffering in order for us to appreciate happiness. But then in this case, as you say, that suffering is reduced to just one single person, one single child. And if and I don't know whether it's important here to go back to her claim that there is no guilt. Yeah. Because if they were living with this, you one could say when they're saying, oh, you know, we have to live with the knowledge of this one kid being kept in this in, under these horrible conditions. But they don't feel guilt about it. Right. They, or, they feel rage at first, like they have that initial reaction. They get over it. Well, there's this line a little earlier where they say, right after they find the terms, um, there's nothing they can do. If the child were brought up to the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed, which seems to contradict what comes next, um, Mm -hmm. which is that the child wouldn't be able to appreciate it and would want to be back down in the cellar. But then... she says, but if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omalas would wither and be des- destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omalas for that single small improvement, to throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. It's, mm. it's very strange. Yeah. Like, like, at first, guilt was sort of the idea of guilt as an emotion that individuals feel now in the context of the orgies yeah people feeling guilt about religion sex drugs Mm -hmm. whatever but now it's like 
it's something else. It's like it's a it's a thing. It's a uh, it's, it's a, it almost has that kind of religious quality, like sin or something. Yeah, and they would for the first time have the evaluation that they have done something truly wrong, right? Because if they freed the kid, they would immediately see all of the suffering that they've caused. Then everybody would be capable of suffering. They, and that would truly be guilt-inducing for them, right? And like they, they're under this view that, you know, like, yeah, it sucks that it's the one, but like what would suck more is if a bunch of kids had to live that way. So if we let them out, like that would truly let guilt in. Yeah. Like, it's like they have a ritual, they have a way of understanding that this one kid is necessary for suffering to be minimized. And I think Laguna saying in this world that what they think would be a horrible thing would be to let the kid free and 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 know know what guilt really is. Yeah, I mean that's one way of reading it. I think I don't know why I'm resisting that that interpretation. Um, which I like just to be clear, I, as that I understand it, it's that it really is the wrong thing to do. Like you have one, or, they, or at least they believe, it. or at least they, they believe, believe it that it's really the wrong thing to do. And but just the way she phrases it, that would be to let guilt within the walls. Indeed, that doesn't sound like they believe that that would be something that would really make them feel guilty or something like that. It sounds that they it would sounds be weird. Guilty. I guess like, so. I'm just very suspicious of the two uses of guilt. Those are the only two times those words. That word is mentioned in the sentence we referred to earlier. And they're both just kind of strangely located, strangely phrased. I mean, a lot of things are strangely phrased, but and also just the fact that it it it's it's very contradictory. I don't think I noticed this the first time, but at first they say that it would genuinely be good for the child. Clean it up. It could be comfort. And that would be a good thing. And then later in the part where I think they're rationalizing it says like oh yeah i wouldn't even do any good to release the child you know so there's a lot of self-deception here it seems like to me that she's conveying without making it explicit i i i think you're right because when she's describing like the pilgrimage of these young people they would like to do something for the child there's nothing they can do if the child were brought up into the sunlight of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. That's what they're thinking, right? They're struggling with this situation. They're outraged and they're, they're thinking, come on, man, just bring it out into the sunlight. That would be such a good thing. And then by the time they go home, month for months, they mourn it. And after a while, the the tears at the bitter injustice run dry and they begin to accept it. And here's where they start saying, you know what? Not even bringing it out would do anything, right? She's describing to us the stages of self-deception. Yeah. Or at least right. the stages at which they're understanding this. Um, and I think it's very important to communicate that the, the natural response of everyone is outrage. Yeah. That these aren't people who are incapable of right. this. They're not monsters. Who, They're not psychopaths. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. They're us. Like, we're one They're of them. us. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And this whole yeah. thing is just, we are them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all the different techniques that she uses to implicate us, this is one of them, I think. And she wants us to really feel the dilemma in a way yeah. that we sometimes feel it 
in our own lives. So at the end of this, she says, now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omalas, through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omalas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls, the traveler must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow-lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields. The darkness of the fields is great imagery. Each alone, they go west or north, toward the mountains. They go on. They leave Omalas. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omalas. Wow. It's incredible, right? Yeah, that's, I think, like, crucial to the story like you yeah. like you could think of it as a thought experiment in at times i think that would be even before the of course before this paragraph yeah. that would be a wrong way to to understand it but then when this comes it is deeply meaningful and also cryptic mhm yep because there's there's no hero that goes and breaks the child free no right they they go visit one more time and they just walk away. Presumably these are the people for whom the self-deception just wasn't working. It doesn't right? work. Yeah. They're they're I don't know, enlightened, whatever, whatever it is they are they are, they didn't they didn't let the normal process of justification, rationalization take hold in them. They they went back. Maybe there's something about them that's different that took them back one more time as an adult. Where you where you can't you're not as malleable as you were when you were a kid, and you you just you just leave. I, and I love the description of just they don't even say anything, right? right? And they are not they with each other; they go alone. Yeah, alone. And they don't. And they go somewhere we don't know where, and that might not even exist. I, I, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy because I thought, well, what the decision they're making is to go out into the world with all its cruelties. I think what she's saying is they don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the possibilities that has to be in their mind is that there might be a great society that doesn't have to torture a kid. Maybe. Like, let's go look. But yeah, maybe. It's important. Like, so this is something I was wondering. Like, why does she say that they're going somewhere and, and even the narrator has no idea where or what they're going towards? One thing it does is convey that that they don't know either, right? Like, like you yep. said, all they know is it's not Omalas, and they cannot be part of Omalas anymore. They cannot right. benefit from this child's torture, and they maybe there's a better future where they're going. Maybe there isn't, but this is done. They are completely done with it. The sentence right at the last paragraph that says the place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. That right there kind of fucked with me because 
Le Guin spends a lot of time trying to get us to imagine. She knows we're going to have this imaginative resistance to a utopia where everybody's happy, but also deep and smart and, and yeah. you know, all of the things. She knows that that's going to be a difficult thing for us. And now she's saying the place that they're going toward will be even harder for you to imagine. So it's a perfect ambiguity. She says, I cannot be. describe it at all. She's been so good yeah. at describing Omalas. Right. Maybe it is a much better place. Maybe it's so terrible that she can't describe it. Who knows? Do they know where they're going? What I was just suggesting is that this conveys their ignorance as well, but it's never explicitly said that they don't know. It says, in fact, they seem to know where they are going. But I took that as they seem to know where they're going which is away from Omelas. Yeah. Exactly. What they know is that they are going in the opposite direction. Yeah. They're, that they're leaving, right? Yeah. Wherever we go. They're walking away. You mentioned earlier, like, they're not, they're not doing anything. They're not freeing they're the child. Away. Yeah. What, what, why do you think? I think they, they know that they would be implicated in bringing misery to thousands. Yeah. You know, and they don't want to do that because, you know, like the whole point is I don't like a place that induces misery, so I don't want to be the one to do it, but I can't, the terms of this contract are fucked. Yeah. Like this contract, I don't want to live in a world where there's a contract like this. But they could break the contract. They could live in a place that didn't have that contract anymore by just bringing the child up and, and they don't do that. Um, I mean, they'd be causing misery, you know, I I get it. Like they, they were all raised in the same thing. In in some sense, it's like, it's like leaving a religion, right? Yeah. You leave a religion, only a few people are going to stick around church and tell everybody they're wrong. You're not going to convince them. You could free the child and make them all miserable and they'd be all pissed at you. Um, What you would really ideally want is for everybody to walk away from this city. But you, you probably know that that's impossible. They, they've, they've, she's taken us through every step of the way where they justify and rationalize and to try to convince somebody else that this is wrong, you know, get, get, get agreement that we shouldn't do this anymore is, it seems futile. They don't have to convince anybody of anything though. They just have to take the child and free the child. But they, they could do that, but they know that the consequences are everybody's going to be miserable. Yeah. Well, I think that's there. They don't think that would be the right thing to do. They actually believe that they would be doing the wrong thing if they freed the child, or at least they're not sure that it wouldn't be a deeply wrong act. Well, and and yet they're walking away because they can no longer implicate themselves by the terms of this unfair contract, even if it's a contract that's good, all things considered for the world, they can't be a part of it anymore. And I don't know. I mean, I think that like they might think that it's not their decision to make to free yeah. the child, you know. Um, but and all, like what I was trying to say is they could maybe try to like mount a campaign to say this is fucked up. But they know they're dejected about this. You might imagine that they might mount a movement so that everybody agrees. But they know that they can't do that. They know that nobody's going to be convinced because they've all been essentially brainwashed by this contract. Um and so 
they're dejected in a way that they're like, well, like this is the city, this is the contract, this is what everybody's agreed to. I don't like it. Like peace. Yeah, there's something about the way you're describing it that I that I'm resisting, and I think it's that like I don't think that they even are inclined to try to convince everybody. I think they 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 think that they're that that the people are probably right to not free the child. And so, oh no, what I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not describing it right. What I think is that it crosses their mind that it would two options. I could free the kid, you know, and like make the decision for everybody. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. I could try to convince everybody, but that's not going to work. So I'm walking away. But I, but I'm saying that implicit is that if they thought that they could convince people, then that would be their, I don't think they can. I mean, I don't think they think that, but if they thought they could, let's just say then, then they would do that. That, yeah. That's what you're saying. And I'm saying, I don't think so. I'm saying even if they I'm, thought they could uh, convince the people that they wouldn't want to. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, what are, what, are, what are they saying when they're walking away then? They just want to wash their hands? Yeah, they want not. Are you saying they're the, are they the villains of this story? No. They're, why would they be villains? Because they're not trying to save the kid and they're not trying to convince the people and they're just, it's like the people, when you give them the sacrificial dilemmas, they're like, no, I wouldn't do any, anything. No, I mean, I think it's that, <laughs> I don't think they're trying to convince anybody of anything, um, whether they think they can or not, whether they think that's possible or not. I think they, at some level, some part of them thinks that anybody who can live with this probably should and if i did this campaign to try to convince everybody to break the contract then i would be bringing a lot of misery into the world and i don't want to be and i don't want to do that whether it's by freeing the child unilaterally or by convincing people or by convincing yeah but what i won't do is benefit any more from this child's torture i won't I, i that's the thing that they they can't themselves benefit from this contract anymore and that's why they walk away is that every day that they enjoy the druze and the orgies and the music and the little kid playing the flute is a day that they are profiting off the suffering of this kid and that they just can't they can't live with themselves doing that anymore and maybe that's why there's no guilt right is because anyone who did feel guilt left Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe that's right. They they self-select. I'm not sure what Le Guin is thinking about what ought to be done and I'm more convinced that she doesn't even have an opinion about what ought to be done. Yeah. Like, do you think that she's do you think that she's condemning the people of Omalas or the people who walk away? <clears throat> not any more than she would condemn us and maybe that you know we can talk about like you said the allegorical nature of right. it but to the first question before we get to that does she have an opinion maybe is it, it's certainly not explicit or didactic in any way in the story and i think she's probably conflicted like 
the people of Omelas are conflicted or the ones who walk away are conflicted. And in any case, wants to certainly leave it up to us and not tilt us in any one direction. I mean, that's what's so kind of brilliant. The technique of it is that she has drawn us in. She has made us citizens of this city. And now we're the now we have to make the decision. Can we live with it? Mm. Or or are we going to walk away? Yeah. I'd want to walk away. Uh, but I don't know that I... I don't know. Knowing me, I don't know that I would. Yeah. I think anybody looking at themselves yeah. might say that. There is that dynamic where people know that there's something going on that is wrong and the and that them and that they are benefiting from when they think about it it's sad but then they they somehow find a way to to live with it and you can say this about anything homelessness uh bad I mean, schools even like all, uh, all of the electronics that i'm surrounded by right um were made in china yeah and in many cases in in conditions that are probably inhumane and what am i doing i'm excited <laughs> About by, by children yeah. who are or are almost 10 but look like they're six. Yeah. <laughs> and the poignancy is that she has put all of this on one child. Yeah. Right? All of the things that like, we have a very, like a diffusion. We have like we're, you know, some might say capitalism itself is built on the back of, of yeah. on the backs of, of people who are oppressed. But because it's a diffusion across all of those people and I don't have to think about it, there's no one place I can go to see the congealed suffering of millions, right? Yeah. In Omelas, there is. Yeah. There is that place. You can go see exactly what is at stake. Yeah. yeah. You can, but you don't have to. And I, uh, I think it's important to. that a lot of people don't. So I think of this like mm-hmm. factory farm videos or something where... Right. <laughs> you you could look at one of those and 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 your heart will be wrenched from your chest but you just rather not know you know yeah yeah yep. and yep. even if you're it's... like me that is uh like you're just a vegetarian but you know me like I, yeah I'll, I'll definitely almost always avoid factory farm meat but if i'm out like in vancouver i probably had some and i could look at videos that would make me recognize how horribly uh cruel uh their treatment is but i generally choose not to do that well you know there's this other part of this story which is um many people would think this is absolutely the, the, the best way um right like it would be great if nobody had to suffer but if one people has to suffer for the happy for this so such clear happiness clear good yeah like happiness that one suffer that's you know that sucks for that one person but it's only one like you'd be an idiot not to think of this as a utopia like it's just your emotional response at the one yeah um because there are a lot of kids that are suffering this like in our own society like to be all high and mighty about this city when (laughs) exactly it's like our city except there's just thousands hundreds of thousands of suffering children and that's the brilliance it's it's it can be this story a moral quandary that you ponder about utilitarianism but it's also a 
I don't know if she intended it this way, but I would like to think that she might have intended it to say, oh, all right, you know how bad you feel about that kid? Like, you, know, you know how like, terrible you think this situation is? Now like, multiply that by millions and like, tell me how you feel because you know, you're not doing that. <laughs> well, so, so if this is a parable about just our blindness or our kind of willful blindness to injustice and oppression and exploitation. What's the analogous act of walking away? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and and I don't... I mean, I suppose you could find examples in a local sense, right? Like you could stop eating meat, for instance. I could stop buying cheap electronics from China. But there is nothing as, you know, the, the ability to walk away from it hinges on the the specificity of the suffering right the like specific person who's suffering that allows you to walk away you know to be honest i don't i don't want this to be really an allegory yeah uh, i agree <laughs> it, it's reductive to make it an allegory yeah it's 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 this is this is to me just something to get us to really think about about suffering not like um you know a marxist commentary on capitalism or something like that well i mean you know? so i i feel that completely however i think it like the it can be a parable for so many different things like i think you could make it a parable or an allegory yeah. about jesus and his suffering mm-hmm. and yeah, that's right. you know the problem of evil in general so you could take this certainly in a religious way and that I mean she talks about um the the I don't know if you have the little preamble in in your copy of the story but in no. this collection she says the central idea of this psychomyth the scapegoat turns up in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov and several have, people have asked me rather suspiciously why I give the credit to William James um and so but that notion of a scapegoat right yeah. which was a the real goat <laughs> that carried all the sins and that became symbolic for Christians. That was this Jesus, you know, taking on all the sins and dying. I think I think you're right. And and in the brothers Karamazov, there it's very explicitly. So Ivan Karamazov is saying this contract that his brother Alyosha is trying to make him endorse. This, uh, you know, where everybody is in the kingdom of heaven is is happy. And he says, but I, I, like, it's not that I don't believe in your God necessarily. I just reject him. I reject the terms of yeah. this deal. Yeah. I reject, and, and, and then he puts it to him. He says, what if one small child had to suffer so that we could all be happy? I, I Like, you know, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But I reject it. I am not being a par- any part of it. Yeah. Yep. I love that passage. Yeah. Um. In the at the end of this little foreword, uh, the preamble to this story, Le Guin writes that the word omelas came from a road sign, Salem, Oregon, backwards. And then she ends this little preamble with a quote, like question from somebody. Where do you get your ideas from, Ms. Le Guin? From forgetting Dostoevsky and reading road signs backwards, naturally. <laughs> Where else? <laughs> That's great. So let's talk about it, which we barely have and that's good but in connection to utilitarianism 
So the William James, I, I don't know if you remember, I don't remember this in William James. I th- yeah, she mentions it here um, too. It, and I can read the passage if you want. Um, uh, James, here's how James puts it. Or if the hu- hypothesis were offered us of a world in which Mr. Fourier's and Bellamy's and Morris's utopias should all be outdone and millions kept permanently happy on the one simple condition that a certain lost soul on the far off edge of things should lead a life of lonely torment. What except a specifical and independent sort of emotion can it be which would make us immediately feel, even though an impulse arose within us, to clutch at the happiness so offered? How hideous a thing would be its enjoyment when deliberately accepted as the fruit of such a bargain? Yeah. So I think there what's being pointed to is the limits of reason to explain our reaction to a a situation like this that, you know, if you just run the numbers as utilitarians uh, would like us to do, this is, like like we've said, this is the greatest city imaginable, Um, maybe imaginable, because maybe you do need at least that one child for the contrast. But... There's something that we recoil at the bargain of an emotion that we have, and 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 it's and it's an emotion that I think maybe James is endorsing here as yeah. as giving us real insight. But it also points to this is you know in the critiques of utilitarianism we've talked about this Williams this idea that it matters to us whether we're a part of something, like whether we're connected to it. So even if it's going to go on, we can't just accept that um, we're benefiting from somebody else's suffering or we're implicated in it and just count that as, well, that's just another like uh, extra uptick of happiness, my happiness, right? Like we yeah. will actually we're motivated to remove ourselves from that situation at, 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 our, and at our own expense just to not be uh, involved in this utilitarian bargain. That's just something about some human beings, right, that is yeah, deeply well, important at a deep moral level. Well, I, I think that there is also just descriptively um, a psychological feature that that prevents us from feeling good about this situation. And that is when I see the person suffering, I see their suffering and I feel my happiness that feels fucked up. Yeah. Right. Like I am represent, like they are there. They got the shitty end of the deal. Like I got, I got all the good stuff. Like that doesn't feel right. That violates a deep sense of fairness. Now it's very hard to represent psychologically the, the, accrued pleasure of everybody else it's very easy to see one-on-one fuck my happiness is contingent upon this guy's torture no i don't want that but because it's hard to then multiply all of the happiness you know it's very hard to represent what that even means that a million people are happy we just our mind has trouble going there in order to justify um the situation yeah, though I think that's why she takes so much time to really do that, to really express yeah. the joy and and again like have us fill in the details of what 
is that she wants us to, as much as possible, imagine this really happy place. And, and I now I'm convinced, not convinced, now I'm, I suspect that this is a decent defense of utilitarianism. Huh. Yeah, I don't see that. Yeah, I think it's certainly a horrible thing that's happening to the one person. And but certainly everybody else is really happy and the people who disagree just leave. But like there's nothing that forceful in there aside from the initial shock and reaction of the kids when they see them. Um, there's just this quiet walking away, which is like, fine, if you don't want to be involved in this system, but the system itself, man, like if, if you broke it, you know, you would be causing the suffering of many people. And that much is clear because she, as you say, she has gone out of her way so much to tell us how, how happy they are. So, I mean, I agree with that. And I agree that there's certainly no endorsement of breaking the contract and freeing the kid because nobody um, does it, including all the people that, yeah. that, that, uh, that walk away. However... Do you think they should, by the way? Walk away or free the child? No, free the, free the child. <laughs> it's funny that... I mean, that would be my first instinct, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, fuck this. Like, burn it down. Burn down this <laughs> fucking place. But there's something about the way it's described that makes that just seem like not a genuine... I mean, it's... And I, and I don't exactly get how this works, but it almost <laughs> seems like it's not a genuine alternative. It, or maybe, you know, and one reason that could be is it's just too much responsibility to destroy an entire city's happiness. And you might feel like you were doing it in, because of like this self-indulgent squeamishness, as Williams would right. say, at, at, at the child suffering. And they just don't want to take that burden. But at the same time, they also don't want to become the ra one of the rationalizers, you right. know? And right. so that's their compromise is just. Is it a cowardly act to walk away? I don't think it's cowardly to walk away. Uh, that seems like the, I, I don't know, the way it's, the way the story is portrayed and the way I read it, that's the courageous thing to do. Maybe even more yeah. courageous than freeing the child because that's just, that, that might genuinely be the wrong thing to do in this case. I don't know. Wouldn't you want to free the child? Fuck the kid and his flute. I don't know. I, I have more consequentialist leanings than you. Part of it depends on how much misery, you know, how much could they get along? <laughs> like, how much misery would I really be bringing into the world? Yeah. Like, would I be bringing just dividing up the misery of that child in some equal measure across thousands of people so that, like, then I'd be, I'd feel like it's okay. But I assume that what she means is that the risk is of like just genuine human misery invading the whole the whole town yeah i mean i don't think we're supposed to know that either like the yeah. people who walk away don't know where yeah. they're going we don't know what I it would, would bring necessarily i would offer to be the child i would offer to take the place of the child <laughs> that's that's how good i am i would <laughs> i would take you know have one last orgy take one hit of druze <laughs> I, I I kick the kid that's playing the flute. 
because that kid gets on my nerves anyway, and I would free the child. And all right, bring it. Bring it, normal world. (laughs) Is this what you want? (laughs) Is this not what you came to see? Um, I'm terribly misquoting Gladiator there. Well, huh. I don't know if we resolved anything there, but... Um, I mean, this is the brilliance of the story is that I don't think you can resolve it, right? I think it's so easy, you know, and this is why I recommend anybody who was in the position that I was in who who just heard the idea, like, imagine a torture a kid. That's stupid. No, I would never torture a kid. This is truly giving us the dilemma. Yeah. And it's there's no, right, like the people who walk away that's as good a resolution as you're going to get. And it's not even clear to me that that's, that's almost selfish in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see that. I think they're the heroes and maybe precisely because they don't try to make a big, they don't glorify it. They don't think of themselves as heroes. They don't even say anything. Uh, They don't virtue. They're not virtue signaling, you know, they're not going on Twitter and like, and uh, saying like walked away for a moment last yeah. today like not saying you <laughs> so, should but you so know, excited just saying uh. <laughs> hashtag do the right thing <laughs> um yeah no i think that's what she wants us to think about them as well i think that given the the dilemma that they're facing to do it like that quietly walk away and maybe the hope is that everybody would yeah um and then the kid would just die because they wouldn't even get a little bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> yeah i agree i i I agree like i started feeling dirty when we started making the an allegory too explicit like mapping things onto the world but i think it's an interesting question what walking away would be in whatever allegory you're describing you know what that actually entails but i don't know the answer suicide maybe it's just suicide yeah back to that or not having been born. <laughs> or not. <laughs> All right. We should, we should wrap this up. But join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. I'm going to go do a line of trees. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.